Do you work in an open plan office? Well, ever since the management gurus saw them as a way of improving our productivity and increasing collaboration, more and more of us are. But do open offices actually work? Do people enjoy them? Or do all the distractions and a lack of privacy actually make us less productive? Freakonomics Radio is a popular podcast that emerged out of Freakonomics, the 2005 bestseller that spawned a franchise of three other books since. In the show, one of the book's authors, the journalist Stephen Dubner, sets out to explore the hidden side of everything, including this recent look at the history of office design. The office is such a quintessential emblem of modern society that it may seem it's been around forever, but of course it hasn't. You know, the economy of the United States was based on farming and it was based on manufacturing. And so the office was almost an afterthought. That's Nikhil Saval, the author of a book called Cubed, A Secret History of the Workplace. And so people thought, well, offices are essentially paperwork factories. So we should just sort of array them in an assembly line sort of formation. This meant a big room filled with long rows of desks and scattered on the periphery, private offices for the managers. This factory model, which got its start in the late 19th century, came to be known as the American plan. And it was standard office form for decades, at least in the U.S. But then in the middle of the 20th century in Germany. There were two brothers, the Schneller brothers, who began to wonder about the nature of the American plan. There was a sense that this was arbitrary and there was no real reason to lay out an office in this way. In 1958, Wolfgang and Eberhard Schneller created the Quickborner Consulting Group with the idea of bringing some intentionality to modern office design. And one of the ideas that came to them was that an office is not like a factory. It's actually a different kind of workplace and it requires its own sort of system. And so maybe there isn't a reason to have desks in rows. Maybe there isn't a reason for people to have private offices at all if essentially the office is not about producing things, but it's about producing ideas and about producing communication among different people. And so over time, they pioneered a concept uh, that they called the Bürolandschaft or office landscape. And it was essentially the first truly open plan office. The idea was to create an office that was more collaborative and more egalitarian. It looks extremely chaotic. You just have desks and clusters, and they, they just seem to be arranged in a pretty haphazard form. But in fact, there was rigorous planning around it in a way that would facilitate communication and the flow of people and ideas. And it eventually made its way to England and the United States, and it was considered an incredible breakthrough. A breakthrough, perhaps, but the earliest open offices drew complaints similar to the ones we hear today. Lots of complaints by not instituting a barrier between people, uh, by not having doors, by not having any way of, of controlling the way sound traveled in the office. It stopped facilitating the thing it was supposed to facilitate, which was communication, because it became harder to communicate in an office environment where phones were ringing off the hook, where you could hear typewriters across the room and things like that. It wasn't actually the utopian space that it promised to be. In fact, it was deeply debilitating in some ways for the kind of work that people wanted to do. Meanwhile, there was an American named Robert Probst working for the Herman Miller Furniture Company in Michigan. 
He was not himself trained as a designer. He was sort of like a freelance thinker. Probst was intrigued by the office landscape idea, its openness and egalitarian aspirations, but he also appreciated its practical shortcomings. And he decided to turn to experts, to anthropologists, to social psychologists, to people of that nature. After some research, Probst came to the conclusion that individuals are, well, they're individuals and they need more control over their workspace. He and the designer George Nelson came up with a new design in which each office worker would be surrounded by a suite of objects to help them work better. In 1964, Herman Miller debuted the Action Office. There was a standing desk, uh, a regular desk that you sat at, and a telephone booth. Design critics loved the Action Office. It looked incredible, uh, but it was very expensive and very few managers wanted to spend this kind of money on their employees. So they went back to the drawing board and they tried to come up with something cheaper. In 1968, Herman Miller released the Action Office 2. And it was this three-walled space, these fabric-wrapped walls that were angled, and they were meant to enclose a suite of furniture, and it was meant to mitigate the kind of chaos that an open office plan might otherwise have. You may know the Action Office 2 by its more generic name. Which is the cubicle. The cubicle promised a variety of advantages. It's meant to be very flexible, and it can form an impromptu conference room. And it was meant to divide up an open office plan in a way to mitigate the kind of chaos that an open office plan or an office landscape might otherwise have. And... It was incredibly well-received. It was copied by a number of furniture companies. And uh, soon it was spreading in offices everywhere. But the cubicle could also be exploited. It became a perfect tool for cramming more and more workers into less and less space uh, very cheaply. And so the, the whole notion of what Probst was trying to do, what you know, the, to give a worker a space that they could control, was turned into in, to the exact opposite it was clear that his concept had become the most loathed symbol of office life. Indeed, the revolutionary freedom-giving cubicle came to be seen as a sort of corporate version of solitary confinement. This left Robert Probst most unhappy. And he blamed managers. He blamed people who, you know, were, were not enlightened, that, that created what he called barren, rat-hole-type environments. Robert Probst, like the Schneller brothers before him, had not quite succeeded in creating a vibrant and efficient open office. Their new environments introduced new problems. Chaos in the first case, cubicles in the second. As with many problems that we humans try to correct, whether in office culture or society at large, the correction turns out to be an overcorrection. Unintended consequences leap out and humble us. And yet, in this case, the fact is that most offices today are still open offices. Why are we holding on to this concept if it makes so many people so unhappy? If you're looking purely at a cost per square foot, uh, having an open office is, is cheaper. Stephen Turbin again, and here's Ethan Bernstein again. There are a lot of people, whether they're managers or employees, who like the open office. Bernstein admits that managers are primarily impressed by the cost savings of an open office, but 
some employees... Some employees like it because they have visions of it being more vibrant, more interactive, um, you know, that, that fun, noisy, experiential place they're hoping for um, once you take down the walls and make everyone able to see each other. And there's also been a big push around uh, these collisions that have emerged in social sciences. How do you create these random uh, interactions between people that spark creativity? Collision is a term you hear a lot in office design and the design of public spaces generally. It's the promise that unplanned encounters can lead to good things between coworkers or neighbors, even strangers. Conversations that otherwise wouldn't have happened. The exchange of ideas, unforeseen collaboration. Now, the office is plainly a different sort of space from the public square. The office is primarily concerned with productivity. We'd all like to be happy working in our offices, but is it maybe worth surrendering a bit of happiness and privacy and so on for the sake of higher productivity? After all, that's what we're being paid for. If you want to have a certain kind of interaction that's deep, productive in idea generation or in something that requires us to have lots of quote-unquote bandwidth between each other, it's nice to have that face-to-face interaction Face-to-face conversations are so important. That's Ben Weber. He's the CEO of an organizational analytics company called Humanize. What we do is uh, use data about how people interact and collaborate at work. Think email, chat, meeting data, uh, but now also sensor data about how people interact in the real world. And we use that to understand really what goes on inside companies. Humanize has developed sociometric ID badges embedded with sensors to capture these data. We have by far the largest data set on workplace interaction in the world. And what do the data say about face-to-face communication? In all of our research, that has consistently been the most predictive factor of almost any organizational outcome you can think of. Performance, job satisfaction, retention, you name it. I mean, people did evolve for millions of years to interact in a face-to-face way. We're very used to small changes in facial expression, in small changes in tone of voice. And that's particularly important in work contexts where high levels of trust, especially as work gets more and more complex and the things we build and make together are more and more complex. Uh, Really having that trust and being able to convey really rich information is critical. Bernstein and Turbin also believe in the value of face-to-face communication. Nuanced communication around, here's a proposal I have, here is a thought I have about how this last meeting went, that is a very rich and nuanced form of communication. And uh, most literature suggests that uh, face-to-face communication is much better at that. Sociologists have suggested for a long time that propinquity breeds interaction. Propinquity being co-location, being close to one another. The closer two people are together, um, the more likely they are to interact, the more likely they are to get married, the more likely they are to work together. And interaction being, we will have a conversation. We will actually get some kind of collaboration done between the two of us. You can look at slouching shoulders. You can see what is their facial expression. And that conveys a lot of of, uh, information that is really hard to convey, no matter how good you are at emojis. And let me tell you, I am pretty good at emojis. Some of Freakonomics Radio's episode number 358 called Yes, the Open Office is Terrible, but it doesn't have to be from Stitcher and Dubner Productions. Presented by Stephen Dubner and thanks to Harry Huggins for his help bringing that to you. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.